Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Interviews with Environmental Professionals. We are the Society for the Environment. To provide a brief introduction, the Society holds the Royal Charter, which was awarded in 2004, and we are the custodian of two professional registrations, the Chartered Environmentalist Register, with the post-nominals CMV, and the Registered Environmental Technician Register, with the post-nominals RMVTech. Our professional body members come from a wide range of industries and sectors, reflecting the diverse disciplines of the environmental profession. The number of experts registered as Chartered Environmentalists currently stands at over 7,400 worldwide. To view our licensed bodies or more information about our organisation, please visit our website, socenv.org.uk. So I'd like to start this episode by welcoming Finn Coyle. Hi, Emma. Thanks for taking the time with me on our podcast today. This series is for people to really understand you and your role. So it's an opportunity to talk all about yourself, about what you do, some of your thoughts around the environment, and also to think about people who may want to come into these roles in the future and what you would say to them. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit more about your current job and your role? Sure. So my current job at TFL is Head of Engineering for Buses. Um, I've actually been in TFL for 11 years and for the first 10 years, I've been a specialist for vehicle emissions um, linked into air quality, obviously. But now my role is a little broader and I take challenges for the future vehicles coming into the fleet, electric and hydrogen buses, but also looking after the operation of the, the current fleet we have, safe and reliable operation of the current fleet. So over that time that you've been working for Transport for London, you must have seen a lot of changes. What are the expected tasks that you do now and how might that have changed over the years? So I think when I joined TfL in 2008 was to work on the, the low emission zone and it was, it, it was actually launched in 2008. But it felt like I'd been, it almost feels like I've been in TfL longer because from 2005 to 2008, I was working for the Energy Saving Trust and I was contracted to TfL to do, to do work on that scheme. So I guess the one thing I've, I've seen changed is environmental priorities in London in around you know, the early 2000s. Everything was around reducing particulate matter as London exceeded the EU air quality limit value for PM. And then when that limit value was met in 2011, you know, the, but there might be the occasional breach because of natural uh, substances, um, the focus really changed to NOx and NO2 concentrations in London. And it's a much more challenging um, emission to reduce. The, the PM reduction was simple diesel particulate filters on the vehicles and the NOx reduction to um, improve NO2 concentrations is a much more complicated selective catalytic reduction system. So there's been a, there's been a switch basically in the emissions and, and London still has an issue with uh, nitrogen dioxide concentrations. And CO2 seems to have come in and out. I think under Ken Livingstone, who was around just before I joined TfL, I think CO2 was a, was a, was a big drive. It probably changed a little uh, in the beginning when everyone was focusing on PM and NOx, but I see it coming um, back in, in in a big way again now. And I guess 10 years ago when I first started, electric buses just were not viable at all. The, the, the batteries didn't have the range and now we're very much focused on rolling these out um, everywhere we can. Sure, sure, that's, that's interesting. And um, obviously along the way, some, there's been some key policy decisions which have... I'm guessing sometimes made your job easier and sometimes made it much harder as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we do try our best to share policy, um, but I think shaping policy in general 
there's the, there's the politics behind things and, and, and policies that are introduced and sometimes there's technical reasons for uh, introducing things and maybe sometimes politics comes ahead of that. Absolutely. So just give us an overview of some of the challenges you faced along the way. So I would say, like, like I touched on, the, the switch between diesel particulate filters to the selective catalytic reduction, I think that's been, for the last five years in, in the role, that's been my, my biggest challenge. I think the complications of getting the technology to work in the real world um, has, been, has been challenging. You'll see a lot of, and you'll hear of, you know, there's Volkswagen scandal, and et cetera, that's happened. But there's also the real world versus test cell emissions, you know, that's delivered in the real world. So there's, you know, a vehicle or an engine will perform quite good in a test cycle. And then it goes into particularly an urban condition uh, and emissions can be a lot higher. And I think some of the media and some of the scientists even see that as the automotive industry just cheating. And there's no doubt there has been some of that. And the Volkswagen scandal was a very clear part of cheating. But there's also very difficult to calibrate um, the emissions after treatment in certain conditions. And it's, been, it's very, very complicated. You can develop, even if we have a real-world test cycle, we can develop technology to be good in that real-world test cycle. And then in a certain condition, a certain congested area or you know, a certain exhaust temperature, the system doesn't perform as we'd like. So the real-world emissions reduction is a very complicated area that we're still working on and still learning about. What about some of your highlights? What have been the things that have really stood out for you over your time there? I think, and quite often, it, it's the usual with emissions concentrations. When you introduce a scheme uh, or an improvement, with all the, the variables that affect concentrations of emissions in London, uh, weather being the big one, you know, wind, wind speed, uh, atmospheric, you know, there's a there's amount of sunlight. There's so many things that change atmospheric chemistry that change the concentrations uh, that are here and, you know, emissions coming from our pollution coming from outside of London as well. Sometimes it takes a while uh, for a scheme that we introduce uh, to see the, the benefits of it that are, that are you know, proven in science and papers um, that are released. But I think quite often after this, so we, we will start with a project. And I remember on Putney High Street, the residents were very vocal about NO2 concentrations there. And I think about three years later, I was at a conference and the, pro- the initial project team had sort of, for the first phase of retrofit we were doing had dissolved and we had moved on to other things. But three years later, it was like, oh, TFL's bus retrofit scheme was very, very effective in Putney and and concentrations dropped this amount. So when people realize something has worked, it's quite often a little bit later. Um, But that's that's always good, you know, to hear that something has made an actual improvement and it's, you know, it's a published scientific paper. So those kind of achievements are, are what I like, more so than the kudos you might get internally for a project delivered on time or on budget. I prefer to see something I've worked on has actually delivered a real benefit in London. Sure. And for the people living and working on Putney High Street, it must have made a massive difference to them and to their lives as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the way the way thing is with NOx concentrations, they might actually notice it. With with particulate matter, if a you know a vehicle drove past with smoke pouring out of it, you will certainly notice that pollution. But with with NOx at um, the kind of concentrations that are dangerous for health, you don't really notice it. So there will, there will be an improvement and sometimes it's yeah it's not necessarily perceptible but it's definitely have a, a positive impact on on people's health there that's brilliant that's brilliant so looking around the world where does tfl take inspiration from other transport systems what other cities really inspire you interesting question i think for 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 the retrofit to bring vehicles up to the latest emission standards and and the retrofit of of um, exhaust gas after treatment it's something we're definitely ahead for. 
Um, and we actually, you know, I'll go to different conferences and, and other cities come to see us in London quite regularly to see how we're doing it. And then we'll, they will introduce similar schemes abroad. So there's, um, I know there's retrofit of selective catalytic reduction now happening in, in Hong Kong and in Seoul, Korea. So very much London is seen, seen as the leader in that. But in actual fact, electric buses, China is by far the, uh, the world leader on those. And they will, you know, they have tens of thousands of electric buses over there now. So battery technology has really changed things. And it's what we would have considered, a, you know, 20 years ago, a developing country is now way ahead of, of, the, of the Western world for um, deployment of, of electric vehicles and electric buses in particular. So the Chinese um, are probably seen as the world uh, leader for that now. So I think we, we take the inspiration from them to some extent. Okay, interesting. Thank you. So talking more generally about electric transport solutions, I've just come back from Scandinavia and everywhere you go, there are electric scooters. You can just hop on and, and then hop off. And on face value, they have quite a good environmental record. People think it's quite an eco solution. Can you just talk to us a little bit about um, electric scooters and London and, and some of the issues you might think around something like that? Sure. Yeah. Well, I've actually used them a few times when I've been in, in Paris and I, I enjoy the novelty of spinning around in those. From an environmental point of view, I think there are probably very um, an eco-friendly mode of travel. I mean, there's there is with anything you know production of batteries, etc. That needs to be taken into account. But if they're used in somewhere like Paris that has a very good grid average CO two, I mean, there's nuclear energy in, in the mix there. So you you know sometimes people will question that from an environmental point of view. But in terms of grams per kilowatt hour of CO two. In France, it's very good. So if you charge an electric vehicle in France, your grams per kilometre CO2 are going, to, are going to be very low. So from that point of view, they're, they're definitely very good. Their use in London, they're actually banned by the DFT. The Department for Transport has its own legislation that bans those type of scooters. You can have an electric assist bicycle, um, but only up to 15 miles per hour. And it's supposed to be an assist and, and not, not motoring itself. In other words, it provides a little bit of propulsion assistance, but you're supposed to be able to, you're supposed to be pedaling the bicycle. So those actual scooters are, are banned here. Uh, an overall environmental point of view, it's not something I've looked at completely, but just for the studies I do on, on electric vehicles and the, the general ele- electricity grid mix, I, I'd imagine they're quite good from a, from a CO2 point of view. Do you think that kind of solution is something London will adopt? Obviously, it's a very busy city, often very congested city as well. Yeah, well, there is. There's obviously there's the bike hire schemes, and I, I think you know the um, Santander bicycles have, have proven really, really popular. But now there's also uh, another one, Line, which is an, an electric assist bicycle. So for people that find cycling a little bit difficult, then you can get one where you'll have an electric motor that'll take a lot of the the strain um, from from cycling, so less energy intensive. Um, but I know the scooters are being looked at because they are considered a you know, an eco-friendly mode of travel. The dangers of them are something that needs to be taken into account. I know there was a fatality in South London somewhere um, quite recently, I believe, with a scooter. Um, small wheels, bumpy London roads, um, and I think that that scooter was put out in, into the path of a truck. So the general policy wouldn't come from Transport for London because it's um, highways legislation in general so it's that's the highway code so it would be the department for transport that would have to change the legislation to allow the use of those and there's different stakeholders that will argue so active travel is something tfl is promoting a lot so it's walking cycling because you get environmental benefits for the whole of london 
uh, you know, less pollution, uh, and also the health benefits associated with that. So I guess you wouldn't necessarily get the health benefits with a scooter. You wouldn't actually because you're not really exercising so much when you when you use those. But I, I think there's also in London Vision Zero where no uh, fatalities are acceptable and no serious injuries are, are acceptable on London streets. So there's that balance to be found as well. So the actual safety of the scooters is not something I particularly feel qualified to comment on. Um, but I know that would have to be taken into account as an overall part of you know promoting more sustainable modes of travel, but also the importance of safety taken into consideration too. We'll probably stay away from the EPOGO sticks then. Yes, yeah, yeah. So just going back to you and your role and thinking earlier in your career, can you talk a little bit about why you chose the profession that you did? Yeah, interesting, because it'll be a completely different shift from probably one of the most unsustainable uh, sporting activities in motorsport. So when I was when I was a teenager, I used to actually race. And I don't know if you've, if you've seen motorsport on television or whatever, but it's an extremely expensive hobby to have. And I ran out of money doing that and probably ran out of talent to some extent as well. Um, I decided to study engineering with a motorsport bias. And I think if you're a mechanical engineer, that's kind of the pinnacle of automotive engineering, basically, because everything is super lightweight um, and performance is absolutely key. So um, from a you know from a mechanical engineering point of view, it was a very interesting thing for me to study. But whilst I was um, undertaking that degree, I think I realized my skill set wasn't in design of components, which you really need for a motorsport uh, type environment. But I ended up uh, having a real interest in thermodynamics and engine combustions within engines. Um, so my first job after university was on Caterpillar's graduate scheme, Caterpillar Engines, diesel engine design and development, um, R&D, basically. And... I had a fair idea that emissions were a very important part of, of diesel engine R&D, but when I got into the role, I realized that is 90% of the job um, because you know emission standards are coming in. So your whole focus then is on you know developing the next generation of engine that has lower pollutant emissions than, than the previous one, and that's, that, that was the focus on that. And then having lived in Peterborough for four years and, you know, done the graduate scheme, had my my job in diesel engine R&D. I didn't want to get stuck in that. And um, I kind of, at the time, I thought diesel engine R&D wouldn't have that long left in London, but it, it lasted longer than I, than I expected. I left Caterpillar in 2005. I think diesel engine R&D in the UK now is is winding down completely and, and diesel gate scandal has kind of killed a lot of production of those, those engines. But my... Involvement in vehicle emissions then um, got me a job indirectly working for TfL through the Energy Saving Trust and then ultimately working for, for TfL. And I guess having focused on diesel emissions from um, a development, a, a pure engineering R&D side, uh, when I came to work for Transport for London, I, then I started to realize that the importance of having the policy for emissions reduction and the link into air quality. And I think that's that's been my change now, basically. That's quite an interesting journey from motorsport into what you do now. So when did you first develop that environmental awareness? So I would say, untypical for um, for uh, the engineering sector, I've, I've been a Guardian reader since I came to the UK, so I was always a little bit more on the kind of left, a bit more environmentally aware than maybe some of my peers. But I think my real interest came about when I... Um, so I applied for a job in London. I wanted to move to London. I applied for a job in London... Um, that was called diesel engine emissions analyst and uh, 
as it as I and it was through an agency. But I ended up uh, that job was at the Energy Saving Trust that I didn't know that amount much at the time. But I went in there as one of the few engineers and um, became friends with a lot of uh, most of my colleagues had studied environmental science. So I think through just my peer group there, I guess through osmosis, then all of a sudden working in a in a you know an environmental um, I guess it could be classic quango, but certainly all my friends were very environmental aware, and it, it rubbed off on me. And I, you know, within a year or so, climate change was much, you know, I was much more conscious of that. Recycling, it, it, it's yeah. I would say 2005 when I moved to London and worked from the ESC was the, was the complete shift. And actually, that's one of the great things about being a chartered environmentalist is its breadth. We need our environmental scientists as much as we need our engineers. So, what does it mean to you to be a chartered environmentalist? I think in my sector, it it kind of sets me apart, you know, because I was thinking about this um, a little bit before. It used to be you would have engineers working on the technology, and you'd have people that you know from an environmental science background a bit a little bit working on the policy, and in the middle is kind of like a bit of a Venn diagram part where you overlap, and quite often you will get. Engineers thinking environmental scientists have no understanding of the technology, and then environmental scientists thinking engineers have no understanding of of air quality, and and you kind of sit in your little silos doing stuff, and there's a, lo- a little bit in the middle where you both think you, each other's skills are lacking, and I think I've tried to fill that little gap over the years, you know, working with colleagues, learning through them, working in TFL's environment team, but then also doing quite a lot of um, CPD courses. In, in you know in the environmental side of things, so I have done courses on air quality emissions modelling, lots of other things that a, an, you know a typical engineer wouldn't do. So having built that knowledge up over the years, then to get you know recognition for it and accreditation as a as a chartered environmentalist, I think it's kind of sets me apart then from some of my peers in London, and then demonstrates that I have a an understanding of not just the technology but the wider environmental and, and sustainability implications of you know technology we develop and produce so it's um i think it's a very nice extra you know string of the bow however you want to call it um to show that an, an engineer with a sort of broader set of skills and what would you say to others maybe particularly engineers thinking about their career what advice would you give them well once I, I would definitely anyone that works in the sector where things you develop are, are in are on for energy reduction or reduction of emissions, that kind of side of things. I think having an understanding of the ultimate end goal for any of these things, which is, you know, improving the environment, you will then have a much better understanding of why you're developing that technology. And also it's this thing about the tests and standards that you're developing match the end game. So it's, it's kind of like, I think because I have better understanding of the environment than I did maybe say when I was um, an R&D engineer for Caterpillar developing a diesel engine, we would look, just simply look, take a test standard that would come from the European Union, is Euro, you develop an engine to the Euro 2 standard, we would do that. And, and none of us were had any clue about how it would work in the real world. I think when you have the environmental awareness, you kind of see some of the gaps in policy and you think, actually, if we test that way, it's not actually going to deliver what's needed in London. So I think my having the overall awareness of the environment. And it's particularly things like, you know, NOx is something an automotive mechanical engineer will look to reduce in an engine. Then NO2 is something you measure the roadside. But the complications of which bits are NO, which bits are NO2, and what constitutes NOx, 
is a is a huge issue and it's not it's not well understood in the you know the automotive side or, or policy but it's something i was able to start doing at tfl because having worked with colleagues in air quality and then having developed you know emissions reduction technology i could see there was a gap there so we we started to be able to set standards that were tighter than the the emission standards that have in europe and have you know secondary emissions um, limits as well so i think that wider understanding of the environment if you work in that kind of sector is really important another example is a question i keep getting asked is i go to conferences presenting on bus emissions reduction strategies and someone will put their hand up saying oh uh, battery electric buses all you do is moving the problem from one place to another and you're creating emissions somewhere else and da, 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 da. and then of course if you understand air quality dispersion you can then explain things like the kind of stack you have in a gas-fired power station is so many, you know, you know, it could be like 80 meters in the air and the concentrations, the ground are a lot lower when, you know, emissions coming out of exhausted. You start to be able to, if you're in a managerial position and you're defending policy, you start, when you understand the wider context of it, it's a great help, I think, to things we do. So, yeah, important. I, I definitely think important in my job. Excellent. So you talked about a kind of environmental awakening and people starting to understand a lot more. And we've certainly seen that through the younger generation, even including school strikes, people demanding change, particularly around the climate. How do you think we should channel some of that energy and enthusiasm to make sure those policymakers really start to listen? Yeah, I think it's I think it's already working because I, I now hear people that set the policy senior to me at TfL talking about, I think, the Extinction Rebellion that happened in London and, you know, shut down Waterloo Bridge for the best part of a week, that kind of thing. I think it's, I think it's very positive because, it, it, you know, it sets, it puts things higher up at the agenda again. I think I mentioned it feels like sometimes CO2 especially comes in and out and people can focus on one thing. It's like, oh, PM is bad. We need to get that down. NOx is bad. We need to get that down. CO2. And sometimes people fold off policymakers' radar. And um, I think the protests are a really good way of getting it back into people's minds. So when when I've heard, you know, my seniors presenting on the electrifications of TfL bus fleet, things like the Extinction Rebellion are are quoted in there. And now I've heard senior members of 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 TfL's sort of management talk about if we have a climate change emergency, what kind of things do we need to implement? So Greta, who does our traveling by, she refuses to use air transport and goes, you know, around Europe by train, those kind of things. All that getting into the media then gets into senior managers' minds and then uh, ultimately they'll start challenging people in the technical side like me. What would, you know, if we have a climate change emergency and we need to dramatically reduce CO2 emissions in a year, what are the kind of technology we could do to do that? Um, so that's, that's important. Indeed. So what's next for you? Uh, good question. I'm going to ask this question by my line manager as well. I didn't think I'd end up in... Um, a general engineering role where I also, as well as doing uh, future vehicles that I end up um, on the operational side of vehicles as well. It's a new challenge for me, something I am quite enjoying, but probably what I would like, there's a classic thing in anyone that studies engineering management where they talk about, don't just promote the good engineers to be managers and team leaders and that kind of thing they need to move up within their specialism and if you go to if you work in a big engineering company now you can go all the way through the grade structure um either on the management side or the technical specialist side uh, i think public sector bodies are, are, are quite behind on that kind of thing now so i'm with tfl's engineering directorate is relatively new 
there's been engineers in TfL since, well, there's been engineers and buses in London Underground since, you know, they were founded. But in terms of TfL, they've never had an engineering director until last year. And I'm trying to sort of push for, okay, as well as, you know, having responsibilities for operations of big fleets and, and, and things like this, there is, you know, idea for more specialism. So I'd actually like to be um, more specialized in, in vehicle emissions reduction and energy reduction in, in TfL probably and, and less so about the operational kind of side of fleet. I've done that for sort of promotion to move up grades to, you know, for career progression, et cetera. But I think I'd like to push for a, a more specialized role within the organization for myself. We certainly need technical experts in all kinds of areas. So that sounds excellent. Finally, the last question, if you were able to influence world leaders for just a day, what would be the first thing that you would do? Well, interestingly, yeah, when you mentioned technical experts, listen, listen to technical experts more. I think um, you know, through Brexit and Michael Gove and stuff, everyone's sick of experts. Well, the unfortunate thing is, I think there's too much influence into, into policy. And a lot of times policy starts off with good ideas and good intentions. And then it gets watered down so much by the time it's implemented, it's lost a lot of its original original drive. And a good example of that is the Euro standards for vehicles. Um, the lobby groups are so strong in the automotive industry that they will, you know, push policymakers to sort of lighten things up or relax standards in, in a little way. And it kind of looks like they'll introduce a policy that, yeah, it sounds good on paper, but in reality, they've been lobbied hard by the industry. So as the industry can save X pounds per vehicle, and then the reality is in the real world, the environmental benefits aren't that high. So I think policymakers and government, world leaders, et cetera, should be much more focused on research organizations, universities to influence policy and, and much less about the industry, because ultimately the industry will lobby to, you know, to do whatever it takes to protect their, protect their own interests. At one stage, there was, you know, it, there were... The lead industry were lobbying against lead being removed from petrol in the US in the 1970s. And then ultimately, no one would think about that kind of thing now, uh, having lead in petrol now. So there's a little bit too much listening to industry, I think. And I think it should really go back to listening to experts, listening to world lead professors and, and the knowledge base in the field and less about the protection of industry. Brilliant, Finn. That's been fabulous. Thank you. Really interesting. And good luck with the next step of the technical development. Thank you. Cheers, Emma. So if you're curious to hear more about the CM von RF Tech Registers, please take a look at our How to Become and Why Become recorded webinars on our website, socemv.org.uk. Or you can visit our YouTube channel, Society for the Environment, where they're available alongside our fascinating environmental webinar series, where you can like and subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter at SOCEMV underscore HQ to keep up with all of our latest news. And we release a new episode on the first Wednesday of every month. So if you're interested in our future podcasts, please subscribe to hear more from us. You can subscribe and review through Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher.